Hey, good morning, Integrity Church. I just want to say, first of all, we miss you all so much. And being together on Easter Sunday uh, is a joy, though, in our homes. And we get the opportunity to, to worship and to be a part of uh, this wonderful celebration of the resurrection of Christ. I do hope that you can share some of your photos. Perhaps you are uh, at, still dressed up for Easter and you took some pictures in your yard, whatever it is. Hey, would you just post those and so that we could all see them and just celebrate together uh, all that God is doing uh, across our city and across the world. Uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8 this morning. Before I jump in, let me just pray for us. Father, we are so grateful for this celebration that we can scatter but yet come together in our city and proclaim this wonderful truth that has lasted throughout the centuries that you have risen from the grave. We worship you because you are alive and you call us to, to be living and active believers in Jesus Christ. And so, God, I pray, Lord, that even in this season uh, that we would live like you uh, are alive. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8 is where we'll be this morning. There's a book called The Rise of Christianity, and it's by an author named, uh, who's actually a college professor as well, named Rodney Stark. And in this account, he writes about how believers throughout the centuries had this uncanny ability to survive in difficult situations. In fact, he wrote about the disease epidemics that swept through the urban centers in the Greco-Roman uh, world. Early Christians did not flee as everyone else did in those seasons. And it, rather, they stayed behind to, in those urban centers to help those people who were inflicted by disease. And of course, this led to the believers at that time even getting contracting the disease themselves, and some died uh, through this situation. Stark went on to, uh, to talk about how Christians didn't respond to persecution with violence or guerrilla warfare, but instead prayed for their persecutors. He went on to say during this time, the Roman Empire brought on a massive global globalization where boundaries between states were removed because all states then were subject to Roman control, which brought ethnic diversity and a byproduct of that was racial tension. But Stark says that even at this time, Christianity was the only worldview that taught there was no racial or ethnic distinctions or no cultural hierarchy. That even in the churches that you could find diversity, you could find Jews and Greeks worshiping together. And so Stark begins to ask this question as he, as he really analyzes the early Christians and how they went, went through these difficulties of disease and persecution and corrupt government and racial tension. He says, he asks the question, what makes Christians so different? Were they just uh, eth ethnically or morally more evolved? He says no, and he attributes it to one thing, one primary thing. He says it was the Christian's view of the resurrection. Isn't that fascinating? That an entire worldview of a people could be influenced not so much by the teaching or the moral code of its leader, but rather an event the fact that Jesus Christ has risen from the grave. 
And so the question then is asked, how should the resurrection of Christ shape our worldview? How should it cause us to to live and to, to act differently? How should it cause us to treat others with compassion, with grace, with mercy, with love? This is the entire point of Mark's gospel. Mark is trying to communicate to a Roman audience that the, the, the point of the gospel story, that Jesus' death is not a defeat. Jesus' resurrection changes everything. That through the resurrection, nothing, the world as we know it, would never be the same. And so Mark 15 ends with the betrayal, the death, the crucifixion, and the burial of Christ. And then we see everything change in Mark 16 with the resurrection. I'll pick up in verse 1. It says, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salmone brought spices so they might go and anoint him. And very, very early on, the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. So Mark 16 opens up with a group of ladies visiting the tomb where Jesus was buried. They went there to properly go, to, go through the process of embalming Jesus' body. This wouldn't have been allowed to happen on Saturday due to the Sabbath. They had to wait until Sunday morning because it would have been too dark when the Sabbath ended on Saturday night. It would have been too dark to go and embalm Jesus' body. The spices were there to really offset the odor from what they thought would Jesus began the process of his body decomposing. Little did they know what would happen next. Verse 3, it says, And when they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone uh, for us from the entrance of the tomb? You see, it's pretty clear they were not anticipating what they would, about, what they would soon find out that Jesus had, in fact, risen from the grave. At the end of chapter 15, you you see the process by which they uh, bury Jesus' body. There's a man named Joseph who who begins to wrap uh, Jesus' body in a linen linen shroud. It's sort of the way that you would uh, begin uh, burying uh, really a mummy and how you would mummify a, a person. And, and these ladies, they were assuming that the body was there. They were contemplating uh, that, that who's going to remove this massive stone that sealed the grave in, in, in chapter 15 and in chapter 16. We're going to see this massive stone that covers this tomb where Jesus' body was buried was, was, was huge. And it was impossible for one person to move. And clearly, they were not expecting an empty tomb. But look what happens when they arrive. Verse 4, and looking up, They saw this stone had been rolled back. And then Mark makes it really clear it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. Now there's all sorts of things that the gospel writers speak of about this event. Certain writers highlight different aspects depending on their audience Mark 27, Mark reminds us that there was a guard near the tomb, and this shows that the guard, uh, that the tomb was not easily being, could have been rolled away by someone because the guard was there. It, it was also, it was not possible for someone, one person to physically move this stone that, that, uh, 
kept people from entering the tomb or kept people from leaving the tomb. The, the disciples weren't brave enough to, to go to the tomb. And so no one else, of course, wanted to, to roll away this uh, stone that sealed the tomb. But then in Matthew 28, we see that it was an angel who rolled the stone away. And we know, based on what God is showing us here, that this was the angel that was there in the tomb. Now, it's important to note that the stone was not rolled away to let Jesus out. Many people think that, okay, this is why it was moved away, so that Jesus could, could leave. It, it wasn't that the resurrection, resurrected Christ would have been hindered by a stone. John's gospel later shows us when Jesus visits his disciples after his resurrection, the disciples freak out. They try to lock Jesus out of the house, and Jesus just walks through the wall, like, like material, a material wall that could not stop the resurrected Christ from walking through a wall. It's amazing. It's, it's interesting how this all takes place. And so Jesus obviously wouldn't have problems walking through a stone that sealed the tomb. Why was the stone removed? The stone was removed so that those from the outside could come in. So that those from the outside could, in fact, see that the grave was empty. And so these women, they arrive at the scene. The stone had been moved away, and they find an angel dressed in white there, and they are terrified. Wouldn't you be if you saw an angel. In the Bible, when an angel shows up, it's always a big deal. Only a few times this takes place in Jesus's life. You have pl- places where it happens around, before, and, and after Christ's birth. You, birth. you have it at when Jesus is tempted by Satan. An angel, angels show up and minister uh, to the Lord Jesus. And here at Jesus's resurrection, we find an angel And he's sitting there waiting for these women to appear to tell them the good news. Look in verse 6. And when he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment and seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, as we take a few steps back and consider all that's happened in the gospel accounts about the life of Jesus, think back to Jesus' birth. When Jesus was born, we see a host of angels appear and they show up to unlikely candidates to tell the greatest news that had ever been told at that time that Jesus Christ was born. The the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords is born. Who do the angels appear to? They appear to shepherds out in the field, obscure, isolated in those days, second-class citizens. And here, you see something similar. You see the greatest news that has ever been told, ever in the history of mankind, that Jesus Christ has risen from the grave. Who Who does the angel appear to? 
Is it to the Roman emperor? Is it to the high priest? No, it's not even the disciples. The disciples were too afraid. It was Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of, of James, and Salmone. It, this, was, this would not have been the cultural norm for such a time as this. The Romans would not have given a, a woman this level of, of honor. Uh, the, the Roman view of, of a woman was that of perversion. It was that of objectifying a woman. And remember, Mark is writing this gospel to the Romans to convince them that Jesus was who he said he was. Mark is not afraid to share this detail with his Roman audience. He, he doesn't leave out the fact that the angel came to three women to give the greatest announcement of all. The reason why this is, it, it really shows something about the power of the resurrection. The reason why he's not afraid of this detail is one, because it's true. Secondly, he shows that the resurrection of Jesus does not exclude. It's an invitation for all. Male and female, slave and free, Jew and Gentile, all who come. Now I want us to see what this resurrection is all about. What it all really means. What does it really mean that Christ has risen? How has that changed the fabric of the world? How does that change a worldview of a people who can endure suffering and hardship? Well, first of all, the first thing it shows us is it shows us that the Father did not abandon his Son. In the last few chapters, it, it would seem as if the Father was abandoning his Son. Jesus is there in the Garden of Gethsemane. We've, we've referenced it several times. And Jesus is praying and he's asking the Father, is there any other way that you can remove this cup from me? What does the Father do? He doesn't respond. You see Jesus at the cross and Jesus cries out to the Father, why have you forsaken me? The Father does not respond. You have two chapters of Jesus crying out to the Father. The Father doesn't respond, and now we see the Father's response. Jesus goes to the cross, and his body is buried, and then he's resurrected from the grave. The Father responds by bringing death to life. The Father did not forsake the Son. In fact, the Father gave glory and honor to the Son. In fact, you see Paul write in Philippians chapter 2 that he gave him the name above all names. And in this name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord. Why? Because of his obedience, because of his death, and through this powerful resurrection, the Father did not abandon his Son. The other truth it shows us is that the Father did not abandon us. Why? Because death is conquered. When the Father didn't answer Jesus on the cross, it was because Jesus had absorbed the Father's wrath toward sin and toward us. This is what Jesus took to the grave. He took our sin to the grave 
But when Jesus was resurrected from the grave, it was proof that Jesus' death on the cross was sufficient to satisfy the wrath of God. In, in the way, the, the resurrection was sort of like a receipt. It was a proof of purchase from which we will never have to doubt that our sins are permanently forgiven. Now, some of you are perhaps more responsible than I am because you're good at keeping receipts. So you sleep better at night than I do. But every year around this time, I'm, I'm looking for receipts to, so I can fill out my taxes. And my receipts are often all over the place. They're in my sock drawer. They're in my office. They're often in the center console of my truck or in my book bag everywhere. And I have to sort of frantically find them around this time of year so I can fill out my taxes. And I have to find them so I can prove what I paid for. I I can show an evidence. I can show a receipt of what I paid for. Now the resurrection says, it's a receipt. It's sort of like saying, I owe nothing. My sins have been completely paid for. And because of that, God has not abandoned me. He's not kept me in my sin. I am accepted and I am loved by God. And this is what the resurrection proved, that Christ died for me. And it's evidence that his death was sufficient. Friends, we must believe in this truth in order to have hope. If we do not believe that Christ has risen, this means that the Father has abandoned his own son. The father remains silent. This means that he sent his son to die in vain. If if the resurrection wasn't true, that means that the father has also abandoned us, which means we have no hope in the world after or even the world that we live in now. We have nothing to look forward to other than than the world we live in around us. And friends, as we look at our world currently, what hope is there? We aren't promised health. We aren't promised wealth. We aren't promised prosperity. We aren't promised a life that is free from diseases, war, or corruption. The only thing we can be certain of is the Bible actually says those things will get worse until Jesus returns. But the resurrection is hope in this world that God does not abandon us, that God does not discriminate, that he welcomes all to come, that the Father did not abandon his Son, that Jesus is alive and he reigns over heaven and earth in all creation. Now I want you to leave today with Paul's words to the church of Corinth. Perhaps you're at home and you're struggling believing in this powerful resurrection story. The church of Corinth was a new church that Paul had planted, and many people in Corinth struggled believing that there was a resurrection of the dead. And so Paul actually poses, what if the resurrection weren't true? And he begins to write in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14. This is a life without the resurrection. He says, and if Christ had not been risen, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be 
misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he has raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Then he says, you're still in your sin. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be most pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall be made alive. But each in his order, own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. He must reign until he's put his, all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So here's why Christianity has endured throughout the centuries, because Christ has risen. We have this blessed hope. We do not have to be afraid that we could be free from death, that we can have hope even in an empty grave, as Paul was saying, because our faith is not futile, our preaching is not vain, that our, the, the words of the gospel give us hope that we live for a better day, that God did not abandon those from whom he died for, and that there's no distinction among us, that Christ was not raised as a Jew or a white man, that he was the father of all humanity. There is no hierarchy. The ground is equal for us at the foot of the cross. It's an invitation for all to come. You see, the resurrection gives us new eyes to see, that we have hope in the life to come, and we can live now extending the grace that has been so richly given to us. And so today, with our lives, may we live in the hope of the resurrection. God help us. Let's pray. Jesus, you've been so kind to us. You've been gracious to us by inviting us to this blessed hope. And Lord, we pray, Lord, for those who are listening today, those who are watching in their homes, maybe perhaps for those who've never trusted you. I pray that you would soften their heart and they would see the grace that only you can offer and that there's hope in the resurrection in the life that we have now and the life to come. And so God, I pray for those that are listening that you would draw them to you, that you would give them the faith to repent of their sins and to trust you and to surrender to you. But God, for those of us who believe, 
may we live with this blessed hope. And may our, our worldview be completely shaped because of the resurrection of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.